We do have to get to the important stuff. God has something to teach us this morning. I do believe that. So let's, let's get to it. Last Sunday, Sunday, we started this section of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, uh, all focused on giving, and we tried to lay a foundation for the coming weeks as we looked at the balance of joyful giving last week and to experience the true joy in giving the way that God designed. And in order to do that, you need to have the right view of God or, or a spiritual perspective uh, on life. You need the right view of others to have a supernatural passion that only God can give you. And then you need the right view of yourself, which is, which is a selfless humility uh, and, and putting yourself last. And that balance gives you what you need to understand the real issues that are involved with, with New Testament biblical giving and then, and then to get joy from participating in it. And so we want to build off that foundation from last week. And so today our message is titled, abound in this grace also. And that title comes straight out of the text, straight out of 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 7. And the text is going to instruct us in how to not only participate in giving, but how to abound in it, where giving is part of a natural outflowing of your relationship with God, and it's something you're good at. And I know that that maybe sounds a little weird to say, you know, with respect to giving, but I think as we're going to see this morning, it's something that Paul says. And again, it's, it's not about you. It's not about being good as a giver because you desire some, so, something selfish in that, that you have some selfish reasoning in that. It's all because you understand what God has done for you. And so you give because your heart is moved by the grace of God. And when your motivation is to please the Lord... To honor him with your life, well, well, being good at giving, abounding in that grace will just be the result. And that's the life that we're after. I mean, I, mean, I, hope, I hope that that's, that's the case. Um, so let's go ahead and get into it. Our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 7 through 12. So starting in verse 7, Paul says, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence... And in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. It's the grace of giving that we defined last week. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we do love you. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the instruction you give us in this, in this just important topic. And Lord, I just, um, I just pray that you be with us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit does the work of, of the teacher and, and that you teach our hearts, you, you convict and you convince us of, of what we need to do to, to please you with our life. And Lord, that I pray that, that we're obedient uh, to what you're trying to teach us and what you're trying to get across to us today. Lord, we, we do love you so much. We're just, again, grateful for the opportunity to be gather, together today. We're, it, it, we're thankful for what's going to happen tonight and and such, a, such an important part of not only those folks in Columbus, but, 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 but us here uh, in New Philadelphia as well. But Lord, I pray that you're with us this morning. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, as we started this chapter, we saw the example of biblical giving, right? We looked at those churches of Macedonia and the example that they provided. Uh, today, we're going to get some exhortation. For biblical giving, or as Paul puts it, how to abound in this grace also. Again, how to do it and how to do it well. And the first aspect, our first point this morning of abounding in the grace of giving is to realize the significance. Realize the significance. Now, this one's very simple. We're not going to spend that much time on it, but it is very important nonetheless. Because when it comes to giving, sometimes we don't view it on the same plane as other virtues, other spiritual virtues. 
But Paul tells us that's wrong. Look again at verse 7. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. You see, Paul puts the grace of giving on the same level as faith, and utterance or, or witnessing as a door of utterance is open to us, in knowledge of God's word, in all diligence, the, the work of the Lord, and the love in which they showed Paul to Paul and his fellow laborers. And he said giving was just as important as all of them. So, so that means that point A, giving parallels other spiritual virtues. It parallels other spiritual virtues. It's on the exact same level of importance. And again, I know this one is simple, but I, but I think this is something that we miss sometimes, particularly in a church like ours. And let me give you an example uh, to try to explain that point. If you come around here very long at all, you're going to hear us place a heavy emphasis on the personal study of God's Word, to show yourself approved, according to 2 Timothy 2.15. And that's something that you will always hear around here, by the way, unapologetically, in fact. But there is a danger in that for some people, particularly, and hear me out, but particularly for young Christians or immature Christians who hear that over and over again and never really grasp the why behind it. And they're drawn to the knowledge that they can receive from God, and then in their own pride that, that receiving knowledge becomes more important than anything else than living out the Christian life, than ministering. And so therefore they don't view ministry right and, and giving isn't what they do or even considered as important to them. Because that they're justified in their own eyes because, man, they're learning cool stuff about the Bible. And, and listen, there's a lot of cool stuff to learn. But, but listen, when you miss the why behind it, you're, you're going to miss something very important. There is a reason why spending personal time in the Bible is important. And it's not just to learn the cool stuff. It's that you know, so that you know how to live your life in a way that is pleasing to God. In personal holiness. And as you fill yourself with the knowledge of God's word, the spirit of God is able to use that in the life of others. As you give what you've been given. And that aspect of giving the word of God is just as important as receiving you see, all these spiritual virtues work together in perfect harmony. None of them should occur in a vacuum. So that means giving shouldn't be considered contrary to what's in your heart, or, or you shouldn't consider it lesser than other biblical characteristics. Because listen, you find me a heart that is filled with faith and utterance and knowledge and diligence and love, and I'll show you a generous heart. Because it all works together. It's all one big network. So do not view them in isolation. And don't view one as less important than others. So biblical giving parallels other spiritual virtues. But then also, and, and this is really the most important part of this point, you also need to realize the significance in that B, giving proves your love. That's what Paul said at the, at the end of verse 8. He said, I'm, I'm telling you this, first of all, because the Macedonians have been such a good example. That, that's what he meant by saying the occasion of the forwardness of others. They were forward in their giving. And so it was just an opportunity. I, I, had, to, I had to tell you about these Macedonians. But then he goes on to say that this gives you an opportunity to prove the sincerity of your love. Paul said, okay, I know you love me. That's verse 7. But do you love the Lord? Do you love others? Because this is your chance to prove it. Listen, this, this is very significant because this doesn't just apply to the Corinthians. Of course, this applies to us as well. And we all have the opportunity to prove our love through the giving of our time, talent, and treasure. 
And, he, and here's what I, I think is cool about this. Paul starts off this verse by saying, I speak not by commandment. And it has nothing to do with whether or not the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write those words. Of course he did. And those words are just as relevant and as important as any other words of Paul. It's not what he's saying there. What he's saying is something we talked about last week, that we're under grace and not the law. And, and, and giving isn't about amounts or percentages. Biblical giving is never according to legalism. It's never according to obligation. It's never according to some prescription. He's saying, I'm not commanding you, but I'm giving you the opportunity to prove your love. This is a big opportunity because, listen, and this is very important, giving verifies the level of your love. So that means you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. That's the example of Jesus. We're, we're going to see that in our next point. That's why you see the, the, the word love many times in your New Testament translated as charity. I mean, how do we think of that word charity in the English language? That is truly love in action. It is, it is as we give of ourselves. I mean, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. So you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Not according to the Bible's definition of love. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to love those brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. The, the Apostle John wrote a similar sentiment in, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion for him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Look what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1, 22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned, uh, un, not fake, unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So at the bottom line, whether you love the Lord, whether you love his church, whether you love those in need is evident by how you give of yourself. The true test of sincere love is not your emotions. It's not your feelings. It's your action. And many people are under the illusion that they love because they feel things. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but your love is not measured by what you feel. It is measured by your actions, and your actions may actually disprove your own assessment of your feelings. That's why Romans 12, 9, uh, Paul says, Let love be without dissimulation. Let it be sincere. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Let your love be true. Or sincere, like 2 Corinthians 8, 8 says. Don't say it. Words only have so much meaning. You have an opportunity to prove it with your actions through how you give. So don't allow giving to be an ad, just an add-on in your Christian life, right? We talked last week. We used the example of, of when you come in on Sunday morning. What is it that, that, that brings you here that you desire the most? You know, the teaching of God's word, the worship, the fellowship. But we don't view, you know, the giving of, of our money or our, or our time in, in ministry. You know, we, we don't always view that the same way. It's not as exciting to us. Well, it should be. It's all part, this all goes together don't just let giving just be an add-on, something you do out of duty. You need to realize the significance of it and the importance of it. And it's important because it's who God is. And we talked about that last week, for God so loved the world that he gave. And since it's who God is, it's who we should be. And that, that brings us to the second, our second point, second aspect of abounding in the grace of giving. And that is to remember the standard. Remember the standard. And of course, the standard bearer of giving is Christ. Look at verse 9. It says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And this is really, I mean, this is one of the great verses in the Bible. And it, it almost defies exposition. It states its own case so perfectly. 
I mean, that being said, I'm going to expound on it a little bit. That's, that's, I think that's what I'm here to do. But, but once again, we see grace at the very heart of giving. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds me of, of one of the verses in the hymn at Calvary. It says, O love that drew salvation's plan, O grace that brought it down to man, O the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And what a giver he is. You know, Paul had used the example of the Macedonian churches in the first eight verses of this chapter. But when he gets to verse 9, he takes it up a notch. I suspect as he thought about how that love manifests itself in giving, his mind went immediately to the greatest love and the greatest gift of all. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you talk about love, you have to talk about Christ. When you talk about a love that gives, there is no better example than Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, Paul begins by saying, For ye know. Now that word for links it up with the prior verse. And remember in verse 8, he says, I'm not telling you this by commandment, but just an opportunity. This is an opportunity to prove your love. It's, that's, that's better. And so we already talked about that some. And in connection with verse 9, Paul was saying, I don't need to command you to do this for, because ye know how Christ gave. I don't need to command you to give graciously. You have an example that supersedes any command I could give. That means the giving of Jesus Christ provides a greater incentive, a greater motivation than the command of the apostle or a pastor or a discipler. So don't give because I'm telling you to. Give because Christ gave. And he gave to you. And you know he gave. For ye know, Paul says, you are not ignorant about the giving of Christ. You cannot be a Christian and be ignorant about that. Every Christian knows that Christ came down and gave his life. We all know it because that's the gospel. And if you don't know it, you, you need to learn it today. You need to learn that Jesus Christ came down to this earth and gave his life for you. As he died on the cross for your sins, rose again three days later in place as an atonement, in your place, a substitute for you in front of a holy God. And, and that was the grace that he gave to you. You just have to accept it. In this verse, Paul describes what happens through the gospel, through the love and giving of Christ. And he describes it in, in very, very simple terms. Here it is. He was rich. He became poor so that we can become rich. That's it. It's that simple. It is that simple. But I want to look at these three truths. And listen, again, I'm not telling you anything new. This is all simple. But I want you to listen and I want you to grasp it. I want to remind you of some things. I want you to remember the standard. I want you to understand what the standard is. And in the process, I want you to contemplate what Christ did for you as motivation in your giving. Again, I don't want you to give because we're up here telling you to give. You should give because Christ gave. And the standard didn't just give something. He gave everything. So let's talk about his riches. And Paul says that though he was rich, I mean, was, he, was he talking about some earthly material wealth? I mean, no, of course not. What he's talking about here refers to his eternal glory, the eternality of Christ, the pre-existence of Christ. He's a member of the eternal trinity. And the eternality of Christ, listen carefully, it is one of the most crucial truths in all of the Bible. There was never a moment when Jesus Christ did not exist. Now, not always in human form, obviously, but the second member of the trinity is eternal. He wasn't created by God. That, that is heresy. And cults teach that. They're wrong. 
And arguments for the eternality and the deity of Christ are inseparable. He cannot, he, he cannot be God and not be eternal. But in case you aren't sure about this point, l- listen to just a few of, of the Bible, of the verses of, with the Bible's testimony of Jesus. Start with a couple Old Testament prophecies, some you know very well. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And Micah 5.2 says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And then what Jesus said about himself. And, and the, the, the testimony of the Gospels. John 1, 1. We know it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. John eight fifty eight. Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 30. He said, I and my Father are one. John 17, 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me in thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 19. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He's talking about Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. In Colossians 2.9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And listen, I'll spare you the rest, but trust me, those are just a few of the verses we could read. He's eternal. And if he's eternal, he's, he's, he's therefore God. And he owns it all. We looked at Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12 last week, but it's good to listen to again. He said, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. He was and is so rich. He is eternally rich, and I don't even know what that means, but it seems like a pretty big deal. And like I said a minute ago, we're not talking about material wealth. Because that's not what Paul was talking about. He is rich in that he owns all power and all authority and all sovereignty and all glory and all honor and all majesty. The wealth of our Lord Jesus Christ is beyond comprehension. It is boundless. It is infinite. He is infinite and his wealth is as infinite as his being. And yet, for your sakes, he became poor. Not for his own sake, for yours and for mine. And when we look at his poverty, we have to look at it in light of his riches. So when most people read this verse, they just think about the the poverty that Jesus lived in on this earth. And that he owned nothing of his own. He he borrowed food. He borrowed clothing. He borrowed a a coin to give an illustration. He he borrowed a a donkey to enter into Jerusalem. And finally, he had to even borrow a tomb in which to be laid. Or they think of of verses like Matthew 8, 20 that says, And Jesus saith unto them, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And And all that's obviously true. But in the context of this verse, the fact that Jesus became poor, it means much more than that. 
Because again, you have to compare it to his riches. You have to understand it in the context of the verse. And, and his riches weren't monetary. They were way more than that. And if his riches were tied to his deity, then, then his poverty is tied to his incarnation. That's how the rich became poor when he was born of a woman. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. It's when he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans 8.3, an eternal God that owns it all. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He was made poor when he had to go to the cross. And have Colossians 1.20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. When the eternal God that never didn't exist had to die a physical death. Luke 23.46, and said, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. And he was made poor when he, as creator, was made a little lower than his creation. Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. See, that was the issue. He was made poor when he left his heavenly realm, when he left being face-to-face -face with the Father and took on human form. It's probably best described in Philippians chapter 2, right? Verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. God, equal with God, the, the second person of the Trinity, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. He became poor for you. Never forget that fact because it was in that poverty that we are given the opportunity to become rich. And, and again, what does that mean? We're still in the same verse. It's all the same context. It has nothing to do with money. It has to do with eternal riches. When we accept his gift of grace, we are put in Christ and get eternal life. Amen. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. We are rich with the same riches he possessed and possesses. Rich in salvation, rich in forgiveness, in joy, in peace, in life, in light, in glory. Rich in holiness, rich in majesty. We are so rich, we are called joint heirs with Christ. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Praise the Lord. Listen to me. The very life of God dwells in us. How rich are we? We live and yet Christ lives in us. We're the possessors of the eternal life of God. We'll be made to be like him. We will reflect his glory. And I don't have time to go in all of this, but we'll possess the new Jerusalem, the crown jewel of eternity. And we'll see in a few weeks. But 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness which causeth us thanksgiving to God. We are rich in everything. And like 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, That should cause us to be thankful. Because God gave to us his son. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his grace. It took grace for him to do that. It took grace for Christ to leave heaven, to be born in a stable, to be humiliated by man, to be born in, in, in sinful flesh, and to die on a cross. And it took grace to do it for us, a bunch of sinners. You know what Romans 5.8 says? But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, what, what, what a thing. What an opportunity we have to, to partake in the eternal riches of Christ. So let me give you an acrostic to help you remember this grace and to remember the standard. Because here's the definition of grace according to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And it's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense, that's grace. We get all the riches of God because of what Christ did. He became poor so that we could become rich. And praise the Lord for that. But here's the thing. And that brings us to our third point. Because once you accept that grace, and now that you realize the significance and have been reminded of the standard of giving, you got to do something with it. So the third aspect of you abounding in the grace of giving is to resolve to surrender. You see, it's now up to you. You have to decide whether or not you are willing to be a biblical giver. And if so, that involves surrendering your will to the Lord's will. Look at, at, at verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you. This is good for you who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Like we talked about last week, and we'll see it when we get to chapter 9. This, is a, this, is, this missions project to those uh, poor saints in Jerusalem was something they started a year earlier, and he, and he sent Titus to remind them. <clears throat> and then verse 11, Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which he hath. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. So now, when it comes to resolving yourself to surrender in this area of your life, we see these verses lay out two important aspects. So, so first of all, and this is letter A, there needs to be a readiness to will. A readiness to will. That's what we see in verses 11 and 12. You have to be willing that, that's all that means. Is listen to me. God tests a Christian on what he is willing to do. This is where Gethsemane enters the Christian's life. In Luke twenty two forty two, 42, Jesus was praying. So saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And, and, and we know what God's will was. And we know that Jesus was willing. And God will test you too. And your response to that test determines the course of your life. Because your will is always at war with God's will. The, the, the will that you have in, in, in your natural man, the, in your old man, it's always at war with God's will. And all too often, we aren't abounding in the grace of giving because we're losing this battle of wills. Listen, we talk all the time, and we pray about wanting to be in God's will, right? And, and we know the difference between God's will and God's plan, and, 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 and we use that term kind of encompassing, but we just pray we want to be in God's will, right? Do you want to be in God's will? Yeah, yeah, praise the Lord, good. Because I have the answer for you. It's, it's, it's so easy. It's, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world. It's what we've already said, but, but let me say it again. Here is how to guarantee, guarantee that you're in God's will. Just be willing. Just be willing. 
Have a readiness to will. God wants us to be flexible and willing to do whatever he calls us to do or whatever he calls us to give. And when we are not, that's when we get in trouble. You see, backsliding always begins at the place where there is controversy with God over a given point. It's the place of unwillingness where trouble always begins. You know, a a good example in the Bible is Job. I know Job was a great man. The Bible has great things to say about Job, even within the book of Job. Great faith, and, and God, man, restores everything in his life, you know, over and over again. But in spite of his deep, deep faith, over time he began to get to a place of controversy with God. And listen, you know, he had some real good friends helping him along the way. I, I say that with, you know, some sarcasm. And, you know, and he had some really bad things happen to him. But, and through time, I, I, I think, you know, it's quite understandable even. He began questioning why God would have him go through what he was going through. And his own will started to rise up. But if, if you read the story of Job, when you get to chapter 38, you know, God's silent for the first 37 chapters of that book. But he's not silent starting in chapter 38. And he comes in and he sets the record straight and he has some questions for Job. And there's sometimes in a Christian's life that God just wants to know. Are you willing? Are you willing to take this? Are you willing to go through this? Are, are you willing to do X? Are you willing to give X. And, and God's saying, listen, I know what it means. I know what it means if you do X. Will you do it for me? And if you're simply willing, God will accept it, even if you are ultimately not able to do it. That's the story of, of Corey and Trisha Vansickle, Right? God wanted to know if they were willing to go to Albania. And they proved that they were. All the way to the point of quitting their jobs before they found out that Tricia had cancer. And they weren't able to go, but that doesn't matter. God wants our willingness. This is about our, our, our heart. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath. And not according to the hath not. You see, God is not asking any of us to give above our ability. He's not asking you to give what you don't have. He just wants you to be willing to give everything. Like the Macedonians. You remember that from last week? We saw it in verse 3. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were what? Willing of themselves. And then along with the readiness to will, the second aspect of resolving to surrender is point B, a responsibility to perform. Now, now again, if you're unable to, for, and we'll talk about this in a second, for, for you're providentially hindered is the way I would put it, well then, okay. It doesn't matter. God will accept it, accept your willingness. But you have to go into it with a, with a responsibility to perform. Assume that you can until you can't. This is how you have to view it. Your goal should always be to complete the job. And when God gives you something to give towards, perform the doing of it. That's what Paul told the Corinthians in verse 11. He was challenging them to complete something they started a year prior. So listen, when, just in, in summary, when it comes to the giving to the Lord, we should complete what we set out to do. And if we're providentially hindered along the way, well, so be it. But listen, that's not most of us. How many of you have set out to do something? To give of yourself? To get back involved? To read the Bible through in a year? To give to a missionary? Whatever. And somewhere along the lines, you quit. You weren't providentially hindered. You just stopped. 
You, you might not even know why, but I do, and I'll, I'll tell you why. If that happened to you, it's just because you quit having a willing mind. It got too hard. It got too inconvenient for your old man's will. And so your will to quit was stronger than God's will for you to perform the doing of it. He allows himself to be limited in your life in that way. We have free will, and we get to choose. And listen, if that's you, all I would say is get back on the horse. Don't quit on God. Start back again. The Corinthians had started something that they stopped, and Paul says, hey, guys, let's get back to it. Let's do it again. Let's get, come on, we can complete this. So don't quit on God because the truth is God will never quit on you. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We need to perform what we say we're going to do because God's sure enough going to perform what he said he will do. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not going to quit on you, so don't quit on him. And, and, and so how do you do it? How do you do it when, when, the, when your will rises up and, and, and times get hard? The way you do it is where we started last week, to have the right spiritual perspective. This is what Hebrews 12.2 says. Looking unto Jesus. You, you remember the standard. And you consider what he did. That has to be the greatest motivation for you to give. Again, don't give because I'm telling you to give this morning. Give because Christ gave. Look to Jesus. That's, what, that's how we need to go about our Christian life. Is listen, looking unto Jesus is how our, our Christian life begins. I, Isaiah 45, 22, and, and I know this is, is written to Israel, but, but the principle applies. It says, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. If, if, if we don't look and know what Jesus did for us, we, we can't be saved through that grace, through, through, through the grace that God gave to us. This was the verse, Isaiah 45, 22 is a verse that was preached the day Charles Spurgeon was saved, and, and that was his testimony. Uh, he said the preacher that day pointed to him sitting in one of the pews in the back of the church and, and read this verse out of Isaiah and said, Son, if you look to Jesus, he'll save you. And Spurgeon said, I looked. And it, it's how our Christian life begins, accepting the grace of God. It's also how our, our Christian life on this earth our physical Christian life will end either at death or at rapture, looking at Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now are, are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And, and obviously, you know, we've never seen Jesus face to face on this earth, but there's going to come a day not on this earth, that we're going to see him. And we will literally be looking unto him and at him. And oh, what a day that will be. So the Christian life begins looking unto Jesus. The, the, the physical aspect of, of our Christian life ends looking at Jesus. It's just the in-between that bothers me. Are we looking to him then? Are we looking to him in everyday life, as we're going about the, the trials and, and the struggles and the pitfalls. And when the controversy with God comes into play, and when your will starts to rise up, do you look to him then? Do you remain willing? Or do you look away? Because I'm telling you, if we are going to be successful, if we are going to abound in the grace of giving, 
the giving of all that we have and all that we are, we have to resolve to surrender, to look to him as the standard. It's simply a decision. A decision to keep our eyes of faith focused on him through his word. And, and again, you know just as well as I do, I mean, it's so easy to get distracted. We're to look to him, we're to remember what he did, and, and yet there's so many distractions that we face in this earth. That's my problem, that's your problem. You know, we all have wandering eyes at times, but we need to bring them back in focus. See your responsibility to perform what God is calling you to do. Because, I mean, seriously, what else do you want to do with your life anyway? I mean, whatever it is. Okay, name your greatest grand plan scenario. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And, and let me ask this. If that's what you're going after, if your life is about what you want and what you desire, is it working out for you? How, I mean, how is it? How is life these days? Are you fulfilled not serving the Lord? Why don't you give yourself to him this morning? And abound in this grace also, because listen, it's possible if you want to honor the Lord with your life and be someone who abounds in that grace and the giving of your life for the work of the ministry, you can do it. It does not take any special gifts or talents or skills or looks or money. It doesn't take wealth. You don't have to have a lot of money to be able to give in a way that we're talking about here that is pleasing to God. It's not about that. It's not about any of that. All you need for your life to be fruitful and meaningful and abounding in the grace of God is to be willing. That's why I love, I love verses in the Bible like Acts 4.13. This is talking about some of the mightiest men in the Bible, and yet I see myself in it. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. They took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. You see, Peter and John, they weren't rich. They were fishermen. They didn't have anything special in and of themselves. But, but do you know what was special about them? When Jesus saw them on the seaside that day and he asked them to follow him, they were willing and they performed it. They did it. The Bible says they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. And they spent time with him. They looked to him and it showed, Acts 4.13 says, that people recognized that they had been with Jesus. So listen, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have. It only matters who he is and specifically who he is to you. Are you willing to give your life and live your life for him, abounding in the grace of giving? And listen, if you feel like you have nothing to offer, then you're in the perfect place. You're just like Peter and, and, and John. And I, and, I, and I think I've used this example, this illustration before, but, but it's fitting here. You're kind of like the pawns in a, in a chess game, right? If you happen to be a novice, if you don't know chess very well, pawns are there, you know, the front row. And they seem kind of annoying if you don't know much about chess. They're kind of worthless. They seem like they just get in the way. But listen, if you do know chess, if, if you play chess and you know chess at all, you know that pawns are absolutely crucial. They're not worthless at all. And again, I'm sure most of you know how the game of chess is set up. You have, you know, what I might call the royal family on the back row. And then you just have the, you know, the little servants, the pawns on the front row. And, and like I said, the, those pawns are, they're not fancy. They're not special. They can only move forward one step at a time or, you know, the very first move they get to move to. That's it. That's all they get to do. You know, all those back row, they, they could diagonal. You know, the rooks can like hook around. You know, the queen, she can do it all. They can do everything. 
you know, they, they got all the fancy ones. But, but those pawns, eh, one foot in front of the other, just plowing ahead. But here's the thing about the pawns. They're the front lines. And they're in the heat of the battle. They can't avoid it. And they're used, if you know how to play chess, they're used to set up victory for the king. And to set up the king's victory, sometimes the pawns have to take a hit. And sometimes the pawns are even sacrificed for the betterment of the family. Sometimes the pawns get in the way of other teams' attacks. But they're willing to do whatever is necessary. And, and you know, I think the lesson is obvious. But you may be like me. Or like Peter and John and be ignorant and unlearned. And you may only be able to move forward one step at a time. But listen to me. As long as we are willing, willing to go through whatever the king asks, one step at a time, we get to partake in the king's victory. Because while you might lose a game of chess, our true king isn't going to lose. So don't miss the victory you can have in this life and in the life to come because you just don't realize, first of all, the significance of giving your all to him. And you miss the opportunity he places on giving to, to prove the sincerity of your love to him. Or second, because you just quit looking to Jesus and you don't remember the standard. And you become ungrateful. That's why we took the time to go through all those verses, just to see how grateful we should be. And how thankful we should be and that should result in us giving. Or third, just because you've never resolved to surrender. You're unwilling, you're inflexible. You know, being that pawn's too hard. Or, or maybe you got excited at some point and you were willing for a while, but you quit. And you didn't take the responsibility to perform. Listen, if you give him your all, I promise you that you will be happy with what you get back in return. God will never owe you anything. And we owe him everything. So let's do the work to abound in this grace also. I'm going to pray, and the praise team is going to come back up and, and sing one final song. And, and like we talk about every week, that as we're singing, that's your time to, to commune with the Lord. And, and I ask you every week that, I, that I'm up here, I'll say, you know, if not, if not now, then when? If you, get, your right, get your life right with the Lord. And if not now, then when? You might as well do it today.